Good morning, Fairhaven. My name's Jeremy, one of the pastors here, and uh, super excited to be with you today. Uh, if you aren't aware, today's a really important day. Like, if, if you aren't aware, uh, today is going to go down as, like, today will go down as the last Super Bowl without the Detroit Lions for the next, what, Ross, three years, five, five years? Uh, I, I cannot wait to preach next year in an Aiden Hutchinson jersey, right, before what? <laughs> no, you, you watching the game today? Who's Kansas City fans? Kaysen's rocking the jersey, so we know who he's rooting for. But and then uh, Philly, my my 11 year old, like he's starting to recognize that, like, ooh, Dad's going to be on a stage. So he starts playing with these seminary jokes, like, Dad, can you say like "Go Birds" from the stage or like "Fly Eagles Fly"? I, we'll, we'll figure it out, right? But uh, yeah, I, I can't help but watching the Eagles, like with Darius Slay and Adamic and Sue on the field at the same time. Like, if I squint just right, they're still wearing Honolulu blue. But no, I'm I'm excited. I'm ex- I'm excited for tonight. I'm excited to be here. Excited to jump into the next chapter we're going to be at in the Book of Genesis. If you're new with us, we're we've been working through the Book of Genesis for the last month or so, and we'll be in it for the next few. But today, uh, we start to see kind of this move within the book of Genesis. Uh, Because the book of Genesis starts with these, like, big, grand narratives of God creating everything that is. And now what we're going to find is the story is going to go from these large, grand narratives of the creation of the universe and everything that exists, and zooming in on a family, on Adam and Eve and their two sons. And so if you want to follow along, we'll be in Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to look at the story in Genesis 4 today a little bit differently. Because we're going to start in Genesis 4, but we're not necessarily going to dive into the details of the story in Genesis 4 today, we'll do that later. But today, I want to look at Genesis 4 as a way of asking the question, is the author, when they are telling us the story we're going to read today, pointing us to something else, a story that we've already heard? Uh, we're in Genesis 4. There are not many options of stories we've already heard, right? But are there parallels? You know that, like, that dashboard in your brain that, like, the lights start, the, the deja vu light starts blinking? I want to start asking those questions. Are we being pointed at something else? And so I want to start in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, we'll, we'll read the entire kind of Cain and Abel story. So Genesis 4, starting at verse 1. It says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man, which would be like a killer baby announcement, wouldn't it? Like, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. 
While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Uh, So the story of Cain and Abel, and I want to start by looking at, there's a verse right in the middle I kind of want us to hold on to this morning. It's this, when God says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's an interesting way of describing sin, isn't it? They're like, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's almost as if this idea of sin is that sin is this thing that it's, it's there and it's crouching and it's waiting to pounce. It wants to pounce. It wants to, de- to devour unless it becomes ruled over. That the Cain and Abel story, it almost, gives, it almost gives kind of an animalistic quality to sin, doesn't it? That it's crouching at the door. It's waiting to pounce. It desires to have you. It desires to devour you. It almost feels like there's an animalistic quality to sin. So I want to ask the question, as kind of the first one to kind of get us started, have we read a story yet where sin or temptation gets depicted as an animal? What tempts Adam and Eve just a chapter prior? We see a snake, right? Uh, So here we have this sin crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Uh, We have a chapter earlier, sin uh, depicted as this. And I, I get it. Some of you are going, okay, that feels thin, right? But what if we start looking at what happens next? So after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, after Cain kills his brother, what is God's response? Well, God shows up with a question, right? To Adam and Eve, God asks, Where are you? To Cain, God asks, where is your brother? How do both respond? Well, they both respond by kind of deflecting, right? To Adam and Eve, they start pointing fingers at each other, pointing fingers at the snake. To Cain, he kind of points a finger and says, what kind of question is that? And then what comes next? After God confronts them, after this conversation, God, what does he do next? God will pronounce a curse. To Adam and Eve, he pronounces curses. They're in Genesis 3. To Cain, God will pronounce a curse. What is a significant part of the curse? Well, to Adam and Eve, when you work the land, it's going to be toilsome. To Cain, when you work the land, it's not going to produce. It's going to be toilsome. 
then are they able to stay living where they were? No. Both Adam and Eve and Cain are banished from where they're living, and which direction do they head? Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, and they head east. Cain is forced out of where he's living, and he heads east. What are Adam and Eve and Cain's response to the curse God pronounces on them? Well, they both find themselves in a spot where they have fear. Adam and Eve, they realize they were naked and they were afraid. Cain is afraid somebody's going to kill him, so he's afraid. And so how does God respond to the fear? Well, to Adam and Eve, God provides a covering for the thing they're afraid of in giving them skins of animals to cover with. For Cain, God responds to the fear that he's going to be killed by covering him with a mark to prevent him from being killed. And then, if we go to the very next thing we read, after God pronounces the curse, it's almost in both Adam and Eve and Cain, there's almost an abrupt move where the next thing that happens is they end up having kids. It almost feels like there's all these parallels between what we read in Cain and Abel and what we just read in Adam and Eve, that it's almost as if the author is trying to point us back. Because in order to understand what's happening in the story, we first need to look back and spend a little bit more time in something they're trying to point out. So uh, in order to do this, I want to bring us back from Genesis chapter 4. We're going to step back one chapter again into Genesis chapter 3 in that interaction between Adam and Eve and their confrontation with sin in this snake in the garden. And uh, we're going to read the story. As we read it, I want you to pay attention to yourself. Do you have any, any issues with something happening in the story? Do you have any major questions about what's going on in the story? Uh, Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, question. Do any of you have any, like, big questions about that story? Big, like, issues, problems with the story, large questions. So I, I've got a bunch of them. Uh, let, me, let me give you my biggest Did anybody else realize in the story there's a talking snake? Can we just name the fact that there is a snake talking? Okay, so imagine today, did you know the sun's shining today? 
How amazing is the sun? So let's pretend it's, a, it's apparently going to warm up a bit today. So let's assume that you and your, like, you, you decide sometime between church and lunch, like, the Super Bowl doesn't start until later, right? Like, you should go for a walk because it's sunny out. So imagine you're out for a walk, you're walking on this trail, and all of a sudden from the side of the trail, a, a snake, just a snake shows up. Like, how many of you are terrified of snakes? Yes. I am not alone. So, a snake shows up, and but it's not just a snake. The thing, like, kind of like, hey, what's up, right? Like, what do you do? You freak out, right? Like, if, if I'm walking down the path and a snake, if, if there's just a snake, I freak out. If there's a snake talking, like, I am running and I'm screaming, right? And I, it's either running or screaming or screaming and running, but, like, I, I don't know which one comes first, but I know they're all kind of mixed up in there, right? But, like, I'm freaking out. Like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, who do I call first? Right? Do, do I call the police? Like, there's a snake, right? Like, it just said something. Like, do you call the police? Do I call the news? Like, do I try to catch it and, like, start a circus, right? Like, there's all these options. But there's a talking snake. And maybe what's more shocking is how do Adam and Eve respond? They answer it. Right? They just like, oh, hey, what's up? Like, oh, yeah, like, it's, they, they just answer the snake. So what is going on with the talking snake? And, and then the question, why, what, what's the snake's motive? What is, what is the snake's motive? What's it, why does the snake try to tempt Adam and Eve? And now we can kind of fill in that question a little bit because we, we can kind of read it. I think we make that question a little bit easier because we will kind of right away sink the snake up to like, to, to Satan, to the devil. And I do think there's something to that. But at this point in the story, all Genesis has told us, if we just start on page one, all we know at this part of the story yet is that it's just a, a serpent. All we know is that it's just a snake. So why is the snake even trying to tempt Adam and Eve? What's in it for the snake? What's behind the temptation? Why does it try to get Adam and Eve to eat the fruit from the tree they're not supposed to eat from? And now the, the rabbis. There's a, a rabbi that I, a, a rabbi foreman. He, he starts asking the question, okay, what is the motive? Why is the snake doing it? And he argues that in order to understand why the snake is trying to do this, we first need to, uh, what do we need to do? We need to back up, right? We need to back up because there's something that's happened earlier that informs what's happening here between Adam and Eve and the snake. So we already talked that Genesis starts with these grand narratives of God creating everything that is, right? So in Genesis 1, God creates the universe, In Genesis 2, we have this account of of God creating everything, of God creating Adam, God creating man, placing man into the earth that he'd created. And then we read this in Genesis 2. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So we know what comes next, right? Like God wants to make a helper suitable. So God just makes Eve, right? Except he doesn't, not right away. Instead, there's almost this, this really, if, if you actually pay attention to it, 
there's a really odd, uh, almost feels unnecessary story that comes in between God saying, it's not good for Adam to be alone, I'm going to make him a helper, and what comes next? Uh, Let's read what comes next. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So in the story, God creates Adam, places Adam in the garden, sees it's not good for Adam to be alone. I'm going to find a helper. So what's the next thing God does? He lines up all of the animals that have been created and parades them in front of Adam to try to see if any of them would work. Like, so question. Did God actually think this weird speed dating game with the animals was actually going to work? Right? Like, did God, it, it said no suitable helper was, like, did, did God, is God step back, stepping back like, oh man, like, I really thought the rhino had a shot, right? Like, is, is God standing back like, man, okay, so he turned down the yak, but like, at this point my money's on the flamingo, right? Like, what is going on? On. And I, I can't think that God actually thinks that as he's parading the animals in front of Adam, Adam's actually going to have a moment where he goes, that one, God, we found it. Right? Like, I don't think God actually thinks that's what's going to happen. So why is God doing it? Why before creating Eve would he first parade all of the animals in front? Well, maybe... Maybe it's not because God thinks it's going to work, but maybe it's because God needs to show Adam something that's true about himself. Maybe it's because God needs to teach Adam something about what it actually means to be human. Because in these opening chapters of Genesis, we find that in so many ways it's trying to show us who is God and what is God like And what we find is in the same conversation, it's also trying to answer the question of what is humanity? Who are we? What does it mean to be human? Are we, is humanity, are we essentially like God-like beings who are fundamentally different from the animals? Or are we simply glorified animals who are fundamentally different from God. What does it mean to be human? And so the Bible tries to answer the question by saying, well, it's kind of in between, right? Like humanity, we were created in the image of God, not as gods, right? We are not gods. We were not created to be gods. We were not created as gods, but we're almost still, we're created differently than the rest of the world, the rest of the animal world, in the image of God. And so it it tries to answer the question, what what does it mean to be human? And then the question, one of the questions uh, some of the rabbis will ask around this passage is, if we were to step back and we were going to poll us and ask the question, 
what does it mean, in this question, what does it mean to be human? What is it that separates humanity from the rest of the animal world? What makes humanity different? What makes you different? Because in a lot of ways, we share a lot of the same parts, right? Like we have a heart, we've got lungs, we've got kneecaps. Like I, do animals have kneecaps? Todd said yes, animals have kneecaps. So what makes you different? What makes humanity different than the animals? And we can answer with a number of different things, but as we start to kind of perk on the question, we could try to throw a bunch of answers, right? Like, so what makes humanity different? Well, we stand upright, right? But like, you've been to the zoo, you know, we might do it better, but like other animals can also stand upright. And, and then if we look at our story with Adam and Eve, this interaction with the serpent, like later on, God will pronounce curses over Adam, over Eve, and over the serpent. And one of the curses God speaks over the serpent is that you will now have to crawl around on your belly, which implies how was the serpent moving first? Is it upright? I don't know. Okay, so, so it can't just be upright because that, I mean, it, we might do it different, but like that's not it. Okay, so what makes humanity different from the animal world? Um, maybe, maybe it's that we have the ability to communicate, right? Like we can talk, we can do what we're, there is not a deer in the woods with a bunch of people, with a bunch of other deer around it as it's talking to them, right? So like maybe it's our ability to communicate. That could be it. But then you realize that, People studying animals have said that, like, oh, animals actually have some really, really complicated ways where they still communicate to each other. Okay, so we might do it better, but, like, that's not necessarily it. And then if we go to our story, like, remember the thing the snake's doing? It's apparently able to talk. So what separates Adam and Eve, what separates humanity from the animal world? Well, we might say it's because we're smarter. Right? It's our intellect. We're smarter. But then you realize that like, dolphins are actually really quite smart. And did you know you can find on YouTube a video of a chimpanzee beating a human in a memory test? So if it's intelligence, like, is the chimpanzee then more human than the human it just beat? Right? Like, what do you do with that? So what is it? What is it that makes humanity different? That makes us Special, that makes us different from the rest of the world. Uh, the rabbi, especially Rabbi Foreman, who I was reading, he, uh, he argues one of the things, one of the answers is something we can actually tease out of the words that the snake actually says to Eve. If we put them back on the screen, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, this question, it's, it's a good translation, but, but in the Hebrew, there's almost, it's, it's almost a difficult question to translate because the question in the Hebrew is almost more of a sentence fragment, like it doesn't end. The sentence, if we were to translate it directly from the Hebrew, would almost say, like, even if God said you may not eat from any tree in the garden, done. Nothing more. Even if God said, you may not eat from all the trees in the garden. And there's almost an implication that ties into this, into the, that sentence. It's almost a, even if God did say you can't eat from any of them, 
so what? Right? So what? Even if God said it, so what? Because it's in this point that the rabbis will say that one of the differences between what it means to be human and what it means to be animal is to the animal world, they are simply driven by instinct and desire. Right? There's that internal voice that says, you see it, you want it, you take it. There's this, it's instinct and desire. And as some of you, you've got puppies that like you trained, but for the most part, like animals are controlled by instinct and desire. It's what happens every time my dog sees my sock, right? Somehow my dog has a sock in its mouth under the table, right? Like dogs are somehow, the animal world is driven by instinct and desire. And so one of the things the story is trying to show us is that you are not an animal, that you are not driven solely by instinct and desire, but to be human is to have the ability to say no to the instincts and to the desires. To be human is to be able to say no. That to the animal world, it's instinct, it's desire, and it's response. There's that, that internal voice of desire that is acted upon. And to be human is to be able to see the the internal voice of instinct, of desire, but to also have the external voice of God telling us the right way to live. And then the decision is, which voice are you going to listen to? Right? So it's almost as if the snake is coming to Eve saying, are you really that much different? Are Are you really that much different? Because notice, notice how we see Eve as she's contemplating eating the fruit from the tree she's not to eat from. What we see is this. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desires for gain, desirable for gaining wisdom, so she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. She saw it, she desired it, and so she ate it. Right? The story, I think one of the things the story wants to show us is that to be human, to be human is to have the internal voice of instinct and desire, but also that external voice, the voice of God to Adam and Eve. They had the desire and they had the voice of God telling them the best way to live in the garden. Which voice would they listen to? See, I think one of the reasons the story is so important to us is because I think this temptation is something we still live with today. That even if God said, so what? Even if God said, this is the right way to live. Even if God said, so what? Right? So many of us have seen the way our lives, our relationships, our friendships, people that we know, the destruction that's caused when we live into the, well, even if God said, so what? Or I, I, I just can't help myself. Right? Uh, Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs actually says this about the story. He says, in the past, men blamed the stars the fates, the furies, the gods. Today, they blame their parents, their environment, their genes, the educational system, the media, the politicians. Because in this story, what we find, what we find in the story is one of the things the story is trying to tell us is that we have a responsibility for how we live 
and for how we act. That in Adam and Eve, they responded to the instinct, the desire, and then immediately afterwards, immediately after they rejected what the, the way God called them to live, they end up pointing fingers and blaming everybody else. And the story wants to drive home that we have a personal responsibility. You have a responsibility for who you are, for how you live. That there are voices that we can follow, and the story is calling us to follow that voice of God in our lives. That, that we can reject that even, even if God said. The story reminds us that we can say no. That you can say no to that next drink, right? Uh, the story reminds us that, that you can say no to that, that, that really good piece of gossip that like you you just want to share you can say no to the joke that you know is going to get a laugh but is going to throw somebody else under the bus you can say no you can say no uh, to the the person who's flirting in the office right to be human is to be able to say no to those things as we hold ourselves under the way that God calls us to live as followers of Jesus in the world. I love the way the Apostle Paul says it. In a letter he wrote to a church in Corinth, Paul says this. He says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And, uh, this part's really important, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And Paul calls us, you do not have to be captive to your desires, to the thoughts. You can actually hold your thoughts captive as you follow Jesus. And so it's my prayer. It's my prayer. It's my hope that for some of us, for some of us, you might be in a space where you recognize you've put yourself in a really difficult, you've, you've seen destruction happen in your life when you have lived according to the, like, even if God said, so what? I'm going to follow what I want. And you've seen the way it's broken your relationships, it's broken things around you. If you're in that space, I wonder if one of the next steps isn't to reach out to somebody you may have hurt, to to say sorry, to, to actually take responsibility for what you've done and the destruction that's come from it. And then I wonder if there's some of us. I wonder if there's some of us where if you're honest with yourselves, what is the thing in your life that is crouching at the door? What is the, the desire, what, what is the thing that is lying crouching at the door of your life that if you're honest with yourself, you know that if you do not put safeguards in place, if you do not invite people into the conversation, if you do not do something, there is something crouching at the door of your life that may, have an op- that may end up devouring you if you do not right now put your foot down to rule over it. What might that be? And for you, if you're there and you can name that, 
I'd like to invite you into conversation with, my, with either of us, to invite somebody in, to put, to put things in place, to be able to rule over the thing so it does not devour you first. And that we together might be able to live that way of Jesus, taking all of our lives captive to following him. Uh, would you pray with me? Uh, God, for this story, for your scriptures, God, we are grateful uh, for the way we're able to read stories uh, that are thousands of years old and yet still so relevant to today. Uh, God, I pray uh, that for each and every one of us here, that for all of us who call ourselves followers of you, that we might give our lives over to you as living sacrifices, taking all of it captive to you. Uh, We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.